0: Good morning, church. Love to hear that excitement. Um, My name is John Lugo. Been here at Mercy Hill for a couple of years, covenant member here. Uh, My wife and I moved out here from God's state of Oklahoma. Um, (laughs) And we love it out here. I don't know that we would ever actually go back to God's state. We uh, love California. Uh, We love the fact that we may be able to move closer to Mercy Hill. Um, And actually just build so many good friendships with the brothers and sisters here. Um, And you guys know it can be kind of dry out there in the form of trying to find a place that preaches the gospel. Find a place that can dive into the word and really move your heart um, in a way that that gets you closer to what God is trying to convey in his word. So, so grateful for this place. So grateful for all of you that came here today. Thank you for being here. Um, We're going to dive into the word today. So. If you have a Bible, uh, we're going to be in the book of Acts. We do have an usher, or two that will be coming by with some Bibles. The book of Acts, chapter 13. If you're unfamiliar with where that is, uh, first of all, it's spelled A-C-T-S, not A-X. And it's going to be after all the Gospels in the New Testament. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the very next book is the book of Acts, chapter 13. We're going to be starting in verse 15. Now, after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up. And motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years, and after that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And John was finishing his course. He said, who do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God to us has been sent the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath fulfill them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, They took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days, he appeared to those who had come up with him from uh, from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to their children by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not let your holy ones see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Let's pray. And God, we know that you rule and that you reign. God, you rule and reign over every moment that we get to exist. Every moment that you give us the opportunity to breathe this air, to have another heartbeat. And God, in those moments, we know that you are accomplishing all of your purpose in our life and in the lives around us. God, I pray that today that... um, that you would just use me as a vessel, as a mouthpiece to proclaim your word. my God that this would be, uh, that the verses alone today would be enough to stir hearts of people that may feel like their heart has gone cold. Or God, even those people that don't know you, those people that feel like that the truth is in them, but are still seeking the truth, to be living that truth now. God, that these verses alone would just be enough to bring them into that salvation, into that new family, to be adopted by you as a son and daughter. God, we know that your word never returns void. We know that in every moment that you are ruling, that you are reigning over what is said and what is accomplished. God, I pray you would accomplish your purpose here this morning. Pray that you would uh, get me out of the way and put me behind your cross. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so a lot of verses to go through today. Um, you'll be happy to know we are not going verse by verse literally through all this. We will probably be here for longer than you would want to be here, more than likely. Um, but we will be highlighting a few verses as we go along, kind of diving into some of the key words of what Paul talks about. But before we do that, I want to start off with a question. So what does a word of encouragement look like for you? So let that question just sit for a minute and think it through. If it even helps, you can think through an encouraging word that maybe someone shared with you fairly recently, a close friend or a family member or an encouraging word that you shared with a friend or a family member as well. What, what was that like? Were the words appropriate for the occasion? Or did the words kind of miss the mark and, and possibly even drive a stake a little bit deeper into the hurt that was going on? Was the gospel evident in what was shared? Or did that exhortation sound kind of flimsy and just a little bit cliche? We've all been through those scenarios where we have just no idea what to say in those times of grief, in those times of sorrow. Those challenging times where there isn't a simple or obvious answer to the problem that's just staring you down, that's just waiting for a response. And those can be the times when we find ourselves feeling pressure to speak. And sometimes we just kind of speak out of turn. And we just think, oh, did I just, did I really just say that? Did I... Well, that, that wasn't helpful at all. Hate that, that, hate that came out that way. When we consider a grid for encouragement or exhortation, Scripture should be our guide. And one specific verse that I found helpful as of late is Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, where the author tells us, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Do you hear that massive driving purpose behind our encouragement in that verse? It's at the very end where the author of Hebrews says, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The words that a grieving parent needs to hear from a trusted friend are vastly different than the words of a child that's experiencing failure needs to hear from a loving parent. For that grieving parent and that saddened child, you have one thing in common: they're likely both being deceived by a lie. They're likely believing something that this world wants them to believe that is not true—a lie that burdens, or a lie that uh, a lie that, can, that there isn't a father that cares for them, a lie that there isn't a Savior that has gone through every fiery earthly trial and far more cosmic one, so that we can turn to one stronger than us and lay our burdens down at the foot of the cross, a lie that we haven't received the spirit in our lives to help us in these times of distress. To accurately apply the teachings of our faith to save us every day as we need saving from our sinful selves every day. This is where turning to the gospel to encourage, to exhort one another is critical for the perseverance of the saints for us here. And so I'll ask the question again. What does a word of encouragement look like for you? Well, it just so happens that we see Paul doing this very thing in these verses today in Acts 13. He's encouraging the faint-hearted. It may not be obvious on the surface. You're probably looking at it and saying, "Like, well, he's he's preaching a sermon." Like, what that, he's did that he does that several times throughout the Book of Acts. He does that throughout his epistles to the letters to the Galatians, um, to the Colossians, to others. You're right. He is but he's preaching probably one of his far more challenging sermons because, you see, Paul cares deeply about these lost souls that are in front of him, so much so that he's willing to make some pretty controversial statements so that the Lord could maybe, but just maybe, open up the eyes of the blind and call those people into the family of God. Paul is exhorting, and his exhortation is being led totally, unequivocally by the Holy Spirit. So if you have your Bible still open to the book of Acts, keep your fingers there in chapter 13. We'll be jumping into verse uh, verse 15 here in just a moment. But first I want to just provide some background on, um, on the book of Acts. So um, this morning, uh, if you're new to the Bible or you just need a short refresher in the book of Acts, good. That's what we're going to be doing. Uh, literally a short refresher. So um, I do truly mean that. <laughs> Uh, The book of Acts. A few things are important with context setting before we jump in. Uh, Three things. So timeline, setting, and purpose. So timeline. Acts starts at the ascension of Jesus. So Jesus has gone through his whole earthly ministry. Um, He has been crucified. He's buried. And as we know, spoiler alert, he does rise, which is great. And now he has ascended into heaven. All four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, give accounts of those big events So if you want to go back and read more, you can find them in those Gospels. Even better, come join us any given Sunday. We are making our way through the book of Luke, and you can hear more about that risen Jesus every single Sunday. So back to Acts. Before Jesus fully ascends to be with the Father, he charges the apostles, the 11 disciples, not 12, since Judas is now out of the equation. He charges the 11 apostles with a great commission. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So these 11 men now have their charge. Take the word of God to all the nations. Or as Luke would write in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so begins the book of Acts at this point. The last two context setting pieces of setting and purpose, we can kind of lump together so we can fly through those as well. Location-wise, the Book of Acts starts in Jerusalem, and it propagates out to a lot of what's today uh, Greece, Turkey, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, and ultimately Rome. So a pretty large swath of area when you look at a map, especially being the fact that they're usually on foot, on a boat, horse and buggy, um, not combustible engines quite yet. So that's 1,700 years before that came around. Um, And so now we get to the purpose. So why were the apostles covering all this ground? Why do they care about trying to cover this large swath of territory? And it was to be a witness to the world for the gospel of Christ, to share the good news about eternal life. So God chose these 11 men and eventually a new 12th apostle to tell the people about the need for a Savior. And as you would imagine, as the souls were saved, new churches were stood up along the way. So the book of Acts is about the early church. Its purpose is to show us, the the readers, how and where the gospel spread. And as we zoom in even more, we see that it focuses all the more so on two specific apostles, on Peter and on Paul. And this book actually gives special airtime to the sermons that they delivered throughout that book. And that's where we are today with Paul's sermon that he's delivering in beside of Antioch. So one last piece of background, I mentioned this name Paul several times, good for you to know who he is before we jump in, so it kind of like gives some, some more meaning to like why he said what he said. So Paul, he is Saul, he was raised a Jew, he was extremely well educated, and before his conversion he was a persecutor of Christians. One day God gets a hold of his life by literally blinding him, he cannot see anymore. Um, he speaks to him, God speaks to Paul, and he returns his sight after a period of time. And it's at this point that Saul is now known as Paul. Extremely radical conversion. If you want to read more about his conversion, his background, his resume, anything, you can turn to so many chapters throughout the book of Acts. You can even read a lot of his epistles and learn more about him. We won't dive into dive into that today for the sake of time, but feel free to peruse that sometime later today or later on this week. All right. So the verses, 15 through 39, we're going to chunk these up into three big pieces, all right? So verses 15 through 25, uh, we'll be looking at the coming of Christ. Verses 26 through 37, we'll see God's ultimate provision in Christ. And then finally, verses 38 and 39, where we're invited into communion with Christ. And so I think many of these verses do speak for themselves, but my prayer is that we all do walk away with a clear picture of how they apply to our lives. Okay, so let's go ahead and dive into it. Verses 15 through 25, the coming of Christ. So we see that things start here with the synagogue rulers reading the word of God. And what do they read? Verse 15 tells us that they read scripture concerning the law and the prophets. Now, for those of you that are unfamiliar with these two categories of Scripture, just think Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus when you hear law. And when you hear the prophets, you can think Joshua, Judges, Kings, Jeremiah, books like that. So all Old Testament texts. And I think it goes without saying that at this time, the New Testament did not exist. So they don't have anything to point to in the coming of of Jesus, of a coming Messiah, of a coming Savior. So these synagogue rulers read the text. And as was customary in most synagogues at the time, after the word was read, a sermon would follow, not too dissimilar from what we experience here day to day, right? And these religious re- re- leaders just finished reading the scripture, the law and the prophets, mind you, and they see Paul and his buddy Barnabas hanging out in the synagogue and tell them at the end of verse 15, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. And what's interesting about this is that they're not asking Paul or Barnabas to exegete this text we're not asking them to give just a teaching lesson on this text no instead what they're saying is that after i've read this heavy word of the law this heavy word from the prophets we need encouragement can you please come up here and give an encouraging word to the people that are gathered here today now, this is a bit of a tangent, but totally related. So just stay with me. So if you ever read through the books of the law, like Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, you know, you, so, so, you know, it's, it's, it's not easy to find an encouraging word in there, right? At least not being, not, at least not without having been able to point to the coming of Jesus. So you can imagine like these rules of do's and do nots, ways you can get kicked out of the city for being unclean, commandment after commandment, all being kept imperfectly by an imperfect nation. And somehow, as part of the nation of Israel, you're convincing yourself that God has chosen you, he's chosen me as this Jewish person to redeem me into something. And that's just hard. That's hard to continue to believe without having seen that promise fulfilled yet. But that's the law. Now, on top of that, to provide an encouraging word from any of the prophets, and like, don't get me wrong. So Isaiah is a great book. They're all great books of the Bible: Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. But have you ever read through any of the minor prophets before? Have you read through like Nahum, Hosea, Joel? So, so I I, I would challenge you not right now, but go ahead and read Nahum and and come back to me with an encouraging word. Without having a reference to Jesus, so this book of Nahum is following the, uh, the how Jonah had just gone in and saved Nineveh, and then now Nahum is saying how Nineveh is about to be destroyed. So, so if you can find an encouraging word, I'm sure it's in there, but it doesn't leap out from the pages at you. You have to go digging for this thing, right? And yet, this is what Paul is up against. Without the gospel, all you have is a bunch of laws from the Old Testament, promises sprinkled throughout Scripture that don't have an ultimate fulfillment yet in a Messiah, and prophets talking about the rise and fall of nations with a Savior that will come one day. But Paul, totally in tune with the Holy Spirit, is the one that responds to this invitation from the synagogue rulers, and he stands up in verse 16. And normally in that day, if you were teaching, you would stay sitting. You would not stand up. So he's already conveying a message to the people gathered there by standing up, that he's not here just to teach on the word. Instead, he is here to encourage. He is here to exhort. He is here to tell the people why it is they're a chosen people, a chosen race. And Paul, knowing his audience, well, he knew at the, the instant that he did stand up, that it did send a message to everyone there that he is here to provide some good news for the people listening. So he looks around the room. He sees two distinct groups of people in the congregation and addresses them both, men of Israel who are the Jewish people and you who fear God who are the Gentiles. And if you're wondering what these Gentiles are doing in that Jewish synagogue, it's a good question to ask. Um, they didn't, So most of these Gentiles didn't subscribe to the full Jewish faith. They did subscribe to some of the um, some of the practices and expressions of the Jewish faith during that time, namely prayer. They wanted prayer. They wanted to know they could pray to a God, and gifts to the poor. They knew they had to give some sort of a sacrifice. That so there was some sort of a work that they had to do so this holy God would ever listen to him, listen to them. And this is how they were admitted into the synagogues. But at the end of the day, these Gentiles were just kind of unsure as to who the true God was. They just kind of saw the synagogue in town. They would go to it, and they would hope that maybe, just maybe, they would hear the word of God, and that maybe, but just maybe, they could be called into the family of God. So Paul sees these two groups, and he just plunges straight into a survey of Jewish history. So I'm going to fly through this really quickly. In verse 17, he recalls the Jewish patriarchs, Israel's travels to Egypt, their 400 years in bondage in Egypt, and how Israel made their way out. In verses 18 and 19, he points to the 40 years spent wandering in the desert and 10 years of conquest for Israel ran, ran out the seven nations in Canaan so they could claim their land. Then he moves on to the Judges in verse 20, and he decides to put it directly into fifth gear because I don't know if you read Judges either. Pretty dark time. Things spiraled out of control. I don't blame Paul for just skipping over Judges and going directly to Samuel at this point. But then things start to slow down in verse 21 when he's talking about Israel asking for a king. And if we're not careful here today, we can miss the exact thing that many of the Gentiles likely miss in the synagogue that day. You see, those last five verses of Paul's sermon weren't really designed for the Gentiles. They were designed for the Jewish people there that day. Paul was strategically using words of encouragement and sovereignty as he summed up hundreds upon hundreds of years of Jewish history. Paul wanted to show at the outset that Israel was chosen by God, cared for by God, and commissioned by God. Here, let's look back at some of the verb choices really fast in those very verses that we just went through. So, verse 17, God chose the patriarchs, or in the original text, elected could be used here. So, God elected the patriarchs. God made them great, or it can also be read as exalted them. God exalted these patriarchs. He's talking about Israel whenever they're in Egypt. God led them out of Egypt, talking about the exodus, that promise of leading them out of bondage. Verse 18, God put up with them. This is... Referring to God's long-suffering during the desert wanderings. Verse 19, God made them, gave them their land as an inheritance. So God fulfilled his promise by giving Israel Canaan. Verse 20, God gave them judges. God allowed Israel to have judges. And then finally, verse 21, God gave them a king. So God allowed Israel to have their king with Saul until he raised up David. As king, Do you see how Paul's words are really intentional here? He is stressing God's mercy to Israel, God's acts of loving kindness, his election of Israel, his exaltation of his people, his gift of an inheritance in the promised land, his gift of rulers and kings every step of the way. In the dark times of Egypt, in the dark times of the judges, in the dark times of Saul, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, remember a people. He didn't forget about them. This is the people that he was jealous for, people that he pursued, the people that he freed, the people that he wished to fully redeem and reconcile to him. Now, do you see what just happened here? Paul has taken some of the toughest teachings of the Old Testament law and encouraged those people in the congregation who are likely struggling with some element of the Jewish faith There seems to be an underlying sense of weariness in the congregation, namely because the synagogue rulers chose not to teach on the Sabbath day and instead requested, asked for encouragement, exhortation from Paul and Barnabas. Now, what everyone is weary from is kind of open to interpretation. The way that I see it is that with Paul focusing so much on salvation through faith alone, as well as God being a promise keeper, it would lead us to believe that these Jewish churchgoers and possibly even the Gentiles attending the synagogue that day are weary with keeping the law because they don't see an end in sight. And they just want rest. Now, look, I can tell you, I have a three-year-old daughter at home, just one, and I can relate to the idea of wanting physical rest. There are many sleepless nights in our household um, but I think what Paul is getting at is far deeper than this, It's this idea of true rest. It's eliminating the restlessness of, of our heart. And this is where the gospel is always appropriate to share with that weary brother or weary sister. Just hear what Jesus has to say in the book of Matthew. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. We even just saying that this morning. Or how about humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him. And why? Because he cares for you. It's 1 Peter 5. Both of these pieces of scripture beckon us to the throne of grace. They encourage us to forklift those worries off of our shoulders and put them on the shoulders of the one who can bear them for us. So as we encourage the faint hearted, as we encourage those around us here today, tomorrow, all of our days, let's make sure that we are leading with the gospel. That it flows from our mouths at some point, at the beginning, the middle, the end. Even just bookending it to make sure that person knows who it is that they are in Christ today. Okay, so back to our text. So Paul just flew through several hundred years of Jewish history, right? In a matter of five verses. Not bad. I couldn't do that. And it throws on the brakes in the successive four verses with David and John the Baptist, because this is the point that Paul really wants to stress here. So first we read in verse 22 that God raised up David. This verb raised up is a common Old Testament expression for God, bringing forth a prophet or ruler to serve his people. So, so not totally out of the ordinary for Paul to use such a term. But what's interesting is that the term raised up is the same expression used to describe Jesus at the resurrection. And not only that, but reading on in verse 22, Paul says, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. While David did all of God's will, he did it imperfectly. But in Jesus, we see the perfect completion of doing all the Father's will, even until death. And so this is where the curveball comes in for the congregation. And you have to make sure that you're paying close attention to this, because so far they've been hearing a lot of encouragement from Paul. About being the chosen race, being part of the elect, part of the promise, receiving an inheritance, and so on and so on. I mean, at this point, Paul can pretty much just go home. He has exhorted that congregation fully and completely. They're satisfied with where they are, and they're probably feeling pretty good about themselves. You know, we have, we we have done a lot, haven't we? God has chosen us. He has brought us into this new light. He has made us this nation that he cares about. But if you know anything about Paul, He would never leave an opportunity like this without preaching Christ crucified. So in verse 23, Paul drops the controversial bombshell that of David's offspring has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Now, I'm sure you can cut the tension in that synagogue that day with a knife of just dropping that one word of saying that it has been fulfilled by Jesus Christ coming what's difficult about the statement with jesus being part of david's line is that everyone in that synagogue every single person knows the the old testament laws and promises that david received a special promise from god and they know the promise uh the promised one would be a descendant from uh that, that would be god's own son and this would establish a kingdom that would last forever so paul's stating that the promised descendant of david was jesus the savior Many people probably began to get a little bit shifty in their seats. But this promise made to David was Paul's ultimate goal for the last eight verses. And he, if you think he's done, well, remember we still have 16 more verses to go, so so we're not done yet. And you better believe that Paul will go on to explain how Christ fulfilled the promise over the next several verses. Um, so then we hit this little transition point in verses 24 and 25. Won't spend a lot of time there. Um, but there is a shift away from Old Testament promises in history, and we turn to the life of John the Baptist. And you've got to be thinking, well, that seems a little bit out of place. Like you were just talking Old Testament, and then I read on to read about the New Testament, and then you just like blurt out this guy John right here in the center. So so what's the point of that? The very fact that John was placed between these two major sections excuse me, uh, of Paul's sermon actually shows that John is playing this transitional role. It shows that John was the messenger, the last line of the Old Testament prophets, who heralded the coming of the Messiah. So he was there telling everyone, Jesus is coming, there is a Messiah that is on the way, it is not me, be ready. There is a new time that will begin when that Messiah comes. You would say that he was almost the link figure, joining together this period of Israel and the period of God's new community in Christ. So it's pretty critical for Paul to confirm that John himself was not the coming one. So rather, John was finishing his task when Jesus appeared and was content to take this humble role in relation to him, even quoting John as saying, After me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So Paul knew there were probably some people there in the synagogue that day that held John to a higher esteem than what they should have. And he wanted to make sure that they knew that John even submitted humbly to Jesus, knowing that this was the true Savior, not me. My name is John. That's weird. Not John the Baptist, um, but, but rather this Jesus. This Jesus is the one that you've been looking for. All right, so I know we spent a lot of time on point one. That was the first big chunk. Um, Don't worry, points two and three are much, much shorter. We'll go faster through those. Uh, But we had to spend the time understanding the subtlety of Paul's words here because it's so easy, so, so easy just to fly through that and not see the richness of what it is that Paul is sharing. All right, so we covered the coming of Christ in verses 15 to 25. Now we enter the second chunk of Scripture of God's ultimate provision in Christ, and that's verses 26 through 37. So Paul just dropped this bombshell about Jesus being the Messiah just seconds ago. Now Paul begins his next section with almost a reset for the Jewish believers. The message about the Savior in verse 23 is directed to the Jews, and you can imagine that it captivated their attention. Paul knows that some, some of them are probably a little shaken by what was just said, just kind of rock their world of saying that, hey, everything you believe now has come to completion. But you have to imagine that these Jewish people are a little bit confused because they're just, they've just been told this Messiah that they've never seen, they've never heard from, and it all just sounds a little bit hokey, honestly, because they've never met this guy. It's, it's this thing that's unseen. So how can they put actual, uh, actual meaning to what it is that Paul is saying? Now, I know if I were sitting in the congregation that day, I would want more proof. Um, I would want proof that this all falls in line with the beliefs of my umpteen previous forefather generations. And honestly, I'd probably even want some additional encouragement to understand what it believes, what, it, what it means now. What does my faith mean now? So is the law still relevant? Um, Do I still submit the Jewish teachings? If so, how? Just question after question kind of comes to mind. And so what does Paul do? He senses this, and he starts with another step of exhortation in verse 26. He starts off by saying, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham. So we'll stop there for just a second. Paul is doing two things. He is calling the Jewish people in the synagogue his brothers. So as a Jew himself... It's obvious that he literally means to call these people his Jewish brothers since they've been raised in the same faith. So literally a like for like uh, as a Jew, they are brothers in this chosen race. But there's also an appeal here, again, very subtle, but Paul desires to call them his brothers in Christ. He's showing them that they can, if they choose, be called a child of the living God And he takes the encouragement a step further. Paul reaffirms the Jewish people's place in Israel's grand story. They're the children of Abraham. They are God's chosen people. Paul is so compassionate to begin verse 26 with the encouragement, knowing that his brothers need to be exhorted before being challenged. And I think this is something we can even apply to our own lives. Before going out and challenging that brother or sister, how do they need to be encouraged? How is it they are struggling in that moment? Are the next words that flow out of our mouths going to be something that builds them up or tears them down? Paul already knew that the following verses would do that exact latter thing. At least at a bare minimum, it would push those Jewish people back on their heels, and they wouldn't know what to do. So that's why he wanted to spend this time exhorting. But we see in verse 27 that Paul states that Jewish people of Jerusalem, and especially their rulers, did not recognize Jesus as our God-sent Messiah. He explains that what was done to Jesus was done in ignorance, that apparently the Jews of Jerusalem failed to recognize and appreciate the significance of the prophetic words of the Old Testament. But yet, in condemning Jesus, they unknowingly fulfilled the exact prophecies that the Messiah must suffer and die. The irony of it all was that the Jews were the very ones who should have understood who Jesus was because they read those prophecies in the synagogues every single Sabbath and probably several times during the week as well. There has to be, this has to be at least one of the most profound parts of Paul's whole sermon that the Jews heard the truth of the word over and over by people of authority. They even lived out their faith daily, but ultimately the truth was not in them. They were left blind to the truth about this Jesus that the law and the prophets pointed to for centuries. So how does Paul stay true to the truth of history while still continuing to exhort this group of Jewish people? Well, Paul emphasizes how the Jews contributed to this divine plan uh, that, that all had been prophesied concerning the death of Jesus. He's even going as far as to show them the critical role that the Jews played in making sure that by condemning Jesus, a Messiah would come that they fulfill the prophecy. You think about that. Like that's just That seems so backwards. How could you exhort some people, a people that committed this grave sin, that, that this idea of casting guilt on the innocent, killing the one that never deserved to die, and yet saying that there's still forgiveness for you, that there's still an opportunity for you to come to this risen Christ. For a people like that, Paul goes on to show the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, and we'll fly through these. They're relevant, so um, so I want to make sure we do touch on it, but we're not going to spend a lot of time on these. Verse 29, so Jesus was nailed to a tree and laid in a tomb. So this fulfills Psalm 22. That reads, For dogs encompass me, a company of evil do- evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hand and my feet. I count all my bones, they stare and gloat over me. Verse 30, God raised him from the dead. This fulfills Hosea chapter 6, verse 2. After two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Verse 31, and for many days, he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee. This fulfills Job 19, verses 25 to 27. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has, has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. And just so you know, this is only scratching the surface of all the Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, because he fulfilled every single one of them he had to as the Son of God. And so why should Paul emphasize these specific prophecies? He had a lot to choose from. There's like over 50 of them or something like that. I I lose count after the first 15. So why do you choose these specific ones? Well, he doesn't leave us guessing. He actually shows us in verses 32 and 33. And he says, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. So he wanted to show the full the entire fulfillment of the law in Jesus to the people in the synagogue. That's the reason why he chose these specific prophecies. But then God, oh not God, but Paul also wants to implore them. He wants to say almost, please, please understand this. The same way that David was raised up by God to be king over a nation for a temporary period of time, that this Jesus was raised from the dead by God to be made king over all of time, to be our king. It, it, it is by the resurrection of Jesus that like God demonstrates he truly accomplishes this promise by bringing forth his son. Everything these Jewish people have been waiting for f- and, and eagerly anticipating has been completed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Paul is Begging them, begging them, please do not miss this. You've studied this for centuries. Your forefathers have wanted this for you. Please don't miss this. I want you in eternity with me. So you can see that Paul is being an evangelist, he always was. He wanted to bring the good news to everyone, the Jews and the Gentiles. And throughout this, these verses, Paul's amplifying the message that the promises God made to their Jewish ancestors have been fulfilled. And Paul used scripture over and over to attest to the resurrection of Jesus as one who fulfilled the promises of David. Now what remains, the only thing that remains, is for these hearers that have just heard everything that Paul said to respond to take action, to move towards Jesus, or to stay exactly where they are. We'll get to that here in just a minute at the very end. But finally, there's a couple of Old Testament texts in this section. We don't have time to fully address them, but I want to make sure that we just kind of touch on them quickly. Um, So in verse 34, uh, it says, I will give you the holy and sure of blessings promised to David. Uh, in short, this is the holy and sure blessings um, that, that – uh, I'm sorry, let me go ahead and check this real fast. So God's promise, he would establish an eternal throne, so a kingdom that will last forever. So he knew but, – but we know that God's promise was not fulfilled in David, um, who did not enjoy tr- uh, an eternal reign, but it was fulfilled in Jesus. The other Old Testament verse in verse 35 refers to God's holy one, who will not suffer decay. And we know that David was not speaking about himself – Uh, In the psalm, because he died, he was buried, and his body did decay. But Jesus escaped death and decay by being raised from the dead. So those are those two verses. There's other depths to them that we're not going to go into right now just because of time. Um, But we will hit this next section. So we've gone through the coming of Christ. Uh, We just finished up God's ultimate provision in Christ. And now we jump into the last point, how we're invited into communion with Christ, verses 38 and 39. So with the third time, he does address the Jewish people there as brothers in the synagogue. Um, And he turns, really, to the most important part of the sermon, the call to repentance. Throughout the sermon, Paul has bolded God's constant acts of mercy for the nation of Israel. And now he offers God's greatest act of mercy, the forgiveness of sins through Jesus. So you have to imagine that these Jews sitting in the synagogue are wondering, "But, but how can it be? how how can it be that through one man this Jesus that our sins could be forgiven but on top of that to hear Paul's next statement in verse 39 I'm going to read this one word for word and then, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses again and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So, if you've read anything about Paul and his epistles, you know that he was really big on justification. He talks about it over and over and over in, in his um, in his epistles, and he wants to make sure that they know that the law of Moses could never, ever justify a person. That's not to say that the coming of Christ only accomplishes this; it accomplishes a lot more. But for them to understand that all these things that you do of keeping the law and keeping, uh, and keeping, um, your, the, keeping the Sabbath, um, that will not justify you under a holy God. Above all, we really shouldn't miss the significance of everyone that believes. So this is an offer for the Gentiles as well as for the Jews, meaning that all people in the synagogue that day could choose to be free from the bondage of sin and be fully justified. In the eyes of God, Paul would go on to write in the book of Romans that it was only by faith and faith alone that Abraham was justified. Scripture says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's Romans 4. Abraham, the father of many nations, was saved because of his faith in a holy God, Yahweh. Now, works flowed out of Abraham because of his faith, but it was never his works that saved him, nor did his works continue to save him. Abraham's name along with other Old Testament saints are written in the book of life because of the faith that they had in a holy God. So why does this matter? Well, because friends, perhaps, but just perhaps, um, the best source for encouragement that we can give to our spouse, to our brother and sister in Christ, um, to our children, to our family members, to our co-workers, to anyone we come in contact with is that they're a child of the living God. Think about that. Think about the impact of those words. You are a child of the living God. You are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. There is a putting off and a putting on. The singular truth will help to dispel any lie or deceit from the enemy and bring light into the centerfold where the darkness has no place. Now, each circumstance will be different, and we need to ask the Spirit for His help in choosing the rest of our words. But safe to say, we should always offer exhortation to another person by telling them who they are in the eyes of our Heavenly Father. No matter the circumstances. No matter the depth of the suffering, no matter the dire straits of their weariness, no matter the hopelessness of their confronting, that God has you. He knows you by name and he desires to draw near you, especially in these trying times. So now the question becomes, how did the Jewish hearers respond after Paul's sermon? Well, if you read on just a bit, you see in verse 42 that the people begged that these things not be told to them again the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. What what great news, right? So like, you have these, these people that are in the Jewish synagogue begging, please, please say it again. We want to hear it again. We want to hear this truth again. Please. So you'd probably expect there to be some changed hearts after this. You'd probably expect there to be a huge family of God, a new church planted. And unfortunately, it's not the case. There's actually bad news that follows in, in the successive verses. You see, these Jewish people came to the synagogue every Sabbath. They sat under the authority of the word, not too different than how we do every single Sabbath. They prayed, they tithed, they observed all the Jewish traditions of that day. But when it came time to respond to the beautiful truth of who they are in Christ, they hardened their hearts. And by the following Sabbath, after some reflection, those very same Jewish believers that were begging to have these same things told to them, reject Paul's message. Throw it to the ground. And so Paul responds in verse 46, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you, the Jewish people, first. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And what's the result from the Gentiles? When they heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many were appointed to eternal life and believed, they wanted this so badly. They were looking for this. They would go to the synagogues. They would do all the, the Jewish traditions, trying to find who this God is, this God of Yahweh. How can I grow closer to this God? And now there's this open invitation for them, an open door to walk through. Brothers and sisters, we're not immune to the same blindness that plagues these non-believers at Antioch of Pisidia. So remember, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So let's ask the question one more time. What is an encouraging word look like for you hopefully it's been shaped up a little bit by what was talked about today how will god's word impact the words that you choose the next time that counsel flows from your mouth i'll just say one more thing and then close things up so this invitation the one that we just learned about uh for those in the synagogue the same invitation exists for all of us here today So if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, please know that we would love to talk to you more about that. We would encourage you to find someone around you to pray with. We would love to welcome you into the family of God. There's a song that we sing at Mercy Hill on some Sundays, and the chorus goes, I'm not going to sing it, um, but the chorus goes, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness is bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Church, be encouraged. There is hope in every trial. There is comfort in every struggle. There is light that breaks through the darkness. There is truth that shatters every lie. Come to the altar. Rejoice because he is risen. Amen? Let's pray. God, we are grateful for uh, your grace for sinners like us. God, while we uh, were not those Jewish believers in the synagogue that day, uh, we would cast you away the same way that they did, should you not have moved on our heart first. If you wouldn't choose us first, God. If you wouldn't chase after us every step of the way. We thank you that we have this loving God that will never leave us and never forsake us. God, may we run to you. We run to you in these moments where we question your goodness and question your presence, because you are always there. You're always with us. In Jesus' name, amen.